a fellow of the Hoover Institute, Professor Victor Davis Hanson, or VDH, is a classicist, a military historian, and according to one bio I have read, also a farmer. He published more than two dozen books, including the case for Trump. One major book that we also have in Hebrew is uh, Karanj and Culture, which was translated as Nitzachon Amarav, The Victory of the West. And we are having uh, Professor Victor here in the very same day that Israel and Hamas just declared ceasefire. So Professor Victor Hanson, how are you? To, how Very are you good. Today? Very good. Okay. So we have many, many things to discuss, and I will uh, try to do it as fast as I can. Now, the yeah. first question that, I'm have, that, that I have is your writings and lectures are full with quotes from the Greeks and the Roman Thucydides, Cicero, and many others. Now, my first question is, what drew you into the classical studies and do you consider them still relevant? We know that the founding fathers were totally immersed in the classical studies, but nowadays people seems to not care so much for them. So please. Yeah, I think they are, of course, essential. And whether people care about them or not overtly doesn't uh, negate the fact that implicitly their lives, whether they live in a Europe or Israel or the United States, are based on certain principles of constitutional government, freedom, uh, free market capitalism. And people who don't like the West or don't live in the West, they tend to gravitate to the West. So implicitly, they are making the decision with their feet that they prefer freedom and tolerance and free opinion, even if they sometimes resent the fact that they are leaving their own country to come to a foreign country who treats them better than did their native homeland. So it's full of ambiguities, but people understand that the Western tradition is, for all of its flaws, is the only one that seems to work. Okay, so, but uh, my question is, if, if they're so important, you know, the foundation of Western culture, why don't we, as part of the Western society, learn them anymore? And do you, uh, do you uh, consider any comeback to those classical studies soon? Yeah, well, I'm worried about classical studies because people who are the guardians of the study of ancient Greece and Rome are what we call woke. I mean, they feel that in the university that they virtue signal their superior morality by cannibalizing their own field. And they they posed as the experts on Greece and Rome. And therefore, if they tell you that it's sexist or racist or homophobic, then you should better believe them. But it's almost as if, as if they're committing cultural suicide. But uh, again, be clear, there were people in the ancient world, Thucydides, Plato, Aristotle, and the Roman nihilists, people like Suetonius, the biographer, Tassus, the historian, or Petronius, the novelist, whose, whose message, whether it was overt or implied, was that there was always a challenge in the West. And that is when you combine personal freedom and constitutional government and free market capitalism and private property, which are the only ingredients that allow us to be secure and prosperous and um, leisured, then there's a tendency for the person to be what the Romans call, they suffer luxus or luxury or decadence 
are, and there's a whole Western tradition warning about this. Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America warned against it. Machiavelli warned against it. Oswald Spengler, Hegel warned against it. And the anecdote to it is family, community, religion, uh, tradition, honoring the past. In other words, any stimulus that would say it's legal to do that, you have a perfect right to do that. You can gorge yourself on pizza all day. You have the money to do that, but don't do that. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for community. You can knock down every statue you want. You can deface this. You can call people this freedom to, to be boorish, but try not to do that because you weaken the very freedoms that allow you to do that. So there's a moral law in the West and there's a legal statute. And with, if you throw away the family and you throw away your local community and the culture of shame and you throw away your religion, then you don't have any breaks on your natural impulses as a human, which can be dangerously manifested under a Western paradigm. Now, it seems that what you say, it's like a like the conservative manifesto, yes? So we need to lean upon uh, the traditions, the family, the ancient values, the Judeo-Christian. And it yes. seems like in the, current U, in, in the current US, the Democratic Party is leaning far away from those elements. And those elements are in fact, as you mentioned before, are the foundation of our culture. So if we are leaning away from those elements, we are leaning away from the foundation of our culture. Would you agree with this ob observation? Yeah, I do. There's a lot of philosophers that have warned us that when you don't believe in God, you'll believe in anything, or better put, if you have to have some transcendent belief and it's not going to be spiritual and moral and ethical and transcendent, then it's going to be earthly and transient. And what we see with the left today is they have a God, a faith-based system, but it's not uh, about a supreme being or a spiritual world beyond the material one we, we sense. And by that, I mean, you can tell somebody that man-made climate change is occurring, but it's dubious whether we have the skill or the ability to radically destroy, uh, that we radically change the climate or whether this phenomenon is natural or man-made. But if once you start to question that faith-based religion of theirs, they get very angry. And if you suggest that racism isn't the only explanation for lack of equality, there are cultural, there are social, there are historical, there are political reasons as well, then you bump up into a commandment, so to speak. So the left has 10 commandments, but they're earthly commandments and they believe in them and they do not allow anybody to question them. There are no borders. If you say that we, no country can exist without a border, then you violated a religious commandment of the left. So when they give up religion, and that's part of the, the malaise of the West, other ideologies, and I shouldn't say that religion is an ideology, but ideologies in, you know, they intrude into what was in religious space and they take over. Okay. And it's much more dangerous because it's a much more arrogant, hubristic idea that man can change human nature and can make heaven on earth. Okay, so which leads me to the second question, since you mentioned God, we can say that although the Greeks had gods, at least on paper, they had what we call now a retrospect, the first seed of sec secularism. So 
in your opinion, what part did religion play in the forming of civilization? Or would you agree that the foundation of Western civilization can be found in the two age, the Hebrew tradition and the Hellenic tradition? And what part uh, religion plays in your philosophy? Yes. Well, I think we always use this metaphor of the three great cities, Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. But what they mean by that, classical scholars are that this idea of constitutional government and free speech and elections and private property and self-criticism, self-awareness, and natural speculation apart from religion originated in this small Balkan country of Greece. And then it was absorbed, institutionalized, uh, strengthened, multiplied, fortified by Rome and Rome's genius at organization. But it still did not have a moral impulse in the way that we see it. No, there was no concept of Sermon on the Mount, for example. And by that, I mean, pagan religion was based on the simple principle that you help your friends and punish your enemies. And the degree that you do that well, then you're moral. And the gods, whether it was Zeus in Greek mythology or Jupiter, they were large humans. And what distinguished them from humans were that they did not die. But if you look and ask yourself, did they lie? Did they cheat, steal? Were they petty? Did they commit adultery? Of course they did. They were just humans. Secularists like that. They feel this is very confident of man to create gods that are no better. But when in the, with the advent of Christianity and the absorption of both the New and Old Testaments into the Western tradition, and there's a lot of controversy at what point this became common, but let's just stay for the point of argument somewhere in the first and second, first century BC and the first century AD, then there was a moral element added to it. And the entire engine of classical scholarship came in and was sort of like a DNA. It was, it was reversed. And in all of those assets that had punished the Jews and punished Christians now became uh, a method of explaining it, of advancing it, of solving, arguing over exegesis and doctrine. And so it, it changed the West. And a lot of classicists say, you know, Edward Gibbons said it, change it for the worst. When you have a legion that is told to turn the other cheek, when people on the other side of the Danube and Rhine consider that magnanimity weakness to be exploited, then Rome fall. I don't, I'm not a big fan of those doctrines, but I would say the existing uh, existing orthodoxy and classical scholarship is that the inclusion of Jerusalem was not necessarily a positive addition. I think it saved classical scholarship and classical civilization as we know it. I would like to raise a point that you mentioned in the book Victory of the West or the how the or in the Britain in the Great Britain uh, translation or why the West has won. They didn't like the word Karanj. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Yoram Hazoni points out that in 19th century Germany, there was a discussion in German academia how to address the biblical and Hebraic heritage in the new German culture. Should the new culture be based also on Hebraic tradition or exclusively on the Hellenic tradition? And the Hebraic tradition should be erased completely. Now we know who won the fight over there, but Hazoni gives an example of an important Hebrew element in Western culture and Western traditions that you also mentioned in your book, Karanjan Culture, that the German tried to attribute to the Greek, which is rebellion against tyranny, 
the prophets, which always re re rebel against the kings. Now, in his view, this theme ran contrary to the Hellenic thought, Antigona, for example. Would you agree that rebellion against tyranny is something that is more of a Hebraic tradition and less Greek or Hellenic tradition? Well, it's, it's embedded in Hellenic tradition. I mean, the first two products of Hellenic literature, uh, and both of them may have been oral. We know that the Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad were composed orally. Maybe Hesiod's Works and Days was too, probably uh, debatable. But my point is that in the Iliad, almost immediately, Achilles, Ajax, and other heroes revolt against the hierarchy. And they say, Agamemnon and Menelaus, you may be kings, by your stature and your hereditary position, but you're not warriors. You don't deserve it on the basis of merit. You look at Hesiod, he says right at the beginning, 700 years before Christ, there are bribe swallowers in the polis. The city state is inhabited by greedy establishment types that oppress poor farmers out in the countryside. So that tradition, and when you read Aristophanes, it's Saturday Night Live mockery. If you, <laughs> if you look at uh, Euripides, uh, it's an attack on organized religion. Often, often, you know, I think it's in the Bacchae where uh, Creon says to Dionysus, God should be better than men, and, and, and they're not, but they should have been more moral. So I think that self-awareness, self-criticism starts with the Greeks, and, and even the excesses of it do as well, where they can be so critical. If you read the Athenian uh, chronicles of the Athenian debates about whether to go to Sicily or whether the jury trial, whether to kill Socrates, you can see what happens when the mob is unleashed and, it, and it's uh, free to attack its own institutions. It can, it can lead to excess, I think. So, But whoever adopts this tradition of self-awareness and self-criticism for all of its confusion and hazards, it in the end is the key that unlocks the entire Western menu. And by that, I mean, to look at your country, for example. So there's no law that comes from a commandment that says Israel gets to have Iron Dome and Hamas does not. Hamas is free to do it. Why don't they make an Iron Dome? But they have to import their missiles stealthily from Iran, who uses Western technology to copy them to make them. And they're never going to catch up with Israel because Israel is not emulating, it's creating. And the same thing, there's no rule that says Hamas, uh, if a person is of Arab background and he is a citizen of Israel and he stands up and says, I hate Netanyahu, there's gonna be no consequences. If he's in Gaza and says, I hate Hamas, he's gonna be shot. So that difference then permeates a society. That means if you don't have free exchanges idea, a free media, free expression, then science suffers, politics suffers. Uh, Technology everything, suffers. Yeah, everything. Everything from sewers to water to construction to the quality of medicine suffers because everybody has a commissar looking over their back and they're worried and they pull their punches or they hire somebody who's their first cousin rather on the basis of merit. They become tribal. And so and it's not a racial thing. It's not anybody can can emulate. Japan is good proof of that. South Korea is good proof of that. They have uh, looked at the Western system. They've kept a lot of their um, indigenous culture, but they understand on the basic building blocks and foundations of a society, science, 
politics, uh, constitutional freedoms, they emulate or they help drive Western culture. And that's very important. It's not a race-based ethnic idea. It's free to anybody. And that's what makes it so much more dynamic than the Asian traditions. I'm not deprecating them or the Arab world that seem to be in the modern world, at least predicated on how you look. I, or, uh, I yeah. think that the most, uh, that the best, ar- ar- the best argument against race is West versus East Germany after Second World, uh, Second world War and South versus North Korea, where they are exactly the same people, but wow, what is the difference? It's, it's like the world, it is unbelievable. Now I have one last uh, classical question, and then we move on to Israel and Hamas. When we discuss Renaissance, for example, we tend to think that the Greek is the original and the Rome is the replica. I, 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 it, it's much more complex than uh, that, but you get the idea. Now, the Rome had no philosopher, but they had technology and they had empire. Would you agree that the US is in essence Rome instead of Greece? They have no philosophy, but they have technology and they have empire. And should we, or what we are now witnessing in the US is like the, as Gibbon put it, the decline of the US or the decline of Rome? Well, that's a, a big question, but very quickly, I think it's a little bit simplistic because take literature, for example, it is true that Virgil copies Homer or Horace copies lyric poets, but they create entire genres. I'll just take two. There is no formal sense of satire, satura in Greek. There's no word for it. Rome, whether it's Petronius or others are juvenile, uh, there are satirists. If you take the novel, the modern novel, where does that start? It, it starts really in Rome with Petronius and Apuleius, and then there are Greek people within the Roman Empire that write novels. Greeks don't have a concept of that. They don't really master the use of the dome and architecture. They don't know how to build roads. And I'm not talking just about engineering capabilities and organizational excellence, but science. And so Rome has certain elements in it that enrich Greece. You could argue that maybe that line of inquiry comes from Greece, but Rome definitely is not just uh, the replicated. Yeah, and we we're, we in America are sensitive to that charge because, of course, that's what the British told us when they dismantled the empire after World War II. They said we're going to be the robe philosophers of Athens, and you're going to be the Roman legionaries, and we're going to tell you how to run the West, and we concede that you are organized better than we are. You're bigger. You have a bigger population, more natural wealth, but still as unsophisticated Romans, you're not adept to handle uh, intellectual or philosophical dilemmas. But the problem with that is that when you look at culture, if you look at the 1930s, for example, and you look at novelists, if you look at Dos Passos or Faulkner or Hemingway or Steinbeck, or Thomas Wolfe, I could go on and on. That quality of lit- literature of novelist was not matched anywhere in the world. And so there are elements within American culture, uh, scientific explosions, literary renaissance, that's in, you know, there was no role that said American popular culture or uh, music had to sweep the globe, or there was no role that said somebody, uh, if you create a situation halfway between Berkeley 
and Stanford and you tell all of these weird little kids in the 1970s and 80s, we don't care how you look. We don't care whether you wear a tie to work. You come out of those universities, just go to it and create social media, computers, internet, and more importantly, bring in anybody from the world who wants to work there. Well, you created the embryo that nowhere else could think of. And that, that's creative. And most of, so people are emulated. And so I, I think America has been very, as far as decadent goes very quickly, the wealthier that America gets and the more leisure that it becomes, it's very hard to instill continuation of the values. You have the same problem in your own country. The generation that built Israel was well known to your parents, but the third generation, and this is a th generational problem in the West, doesn't know, if I take an Israeli that's 18 years old and I try to tell him, do you have any idea why, how your grandfather lived in 1947 and how he almost lost it? Or how when he was six years old, they, they, he was in Auschwitz. It's very hard for him to understand that given Israelis' material success. And the same thing plagues us. The second thing is, if you are going to have a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, and there's only been one or two in history, Rome for a while and the late Republic was that way. Uh, Brazil tries to do it. India tries to do it. Your country is trying to do it. Germany is trying to do it. It's very hard to do. And the only time that it exists, whether it was the Roman Empire or the Ottomans, or the Austria-Hungarians, Austria they use coercion, or the Soviet Union. We don't do that in the West now. So my yes. point is, it requires everybody to say, I give up my tribal affinities, I came to this country, I was born, and I am an American, or I am an Israeli, mm. or I am a German first, and my tribal affinities are second. But okay. when you don't, and that, that's the problem we're having because we're telling people if you don't achieve parity right now when you arrive in the United States, then the United States is culpable because it's racist or sexist, da, 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 rather than, you know, life okay. is not fair sometimes. Which leads to my last question about Israel and Hamas and uh, your yeah. book, Kawanjan Culture. Now, one a thesis, according to Wikipedia, your thesis is that the military dominance of Western civilization, beginning with the ancient Greeks, results from certain fundamental, fundamental aspects of Western culture, such as consensual government, tradition of self-critic, secular rationalism, religious tolerance, individual freedom, free expression, free markets, and, individu and individualism. But there is also one, one major thing that the West, when fight which, uh, one with another, tries to crunch, to smash his opponent, his rival. And this day, this very day, we have ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, and Hamas says, this is, we won. And we said, we won because we won in points. So the, your theory about how the West became so dominant, how the West won, how the military of the West became so, uh, Un in, uh, in, 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 invincible is not suit for Israel and Hamas, is not suit for guerrilla, and it might not suit for the US and Afghanistan. So what's your take on a uh, Karanjan culture yeah. and what just happened with uh, our fight with Hamas? In the 1940s, we developed nuclear weapons. And so the logical extension of a war was no longer possible. 
So you could not, if you were in South Korea and you defeated North Korea, and we did, but you wanted to retake the country, there was the, the suggestion you might have to nu use nuclear weapons. So pe that was considered taboo. And so you and I know that if Israel did not have restraints on it by the United Nations or public opinion in Europe, but most importantly by a military supplier of the United States, you could defeat Hamas and you could defeat them in a way that they would not do what they did. So that's one thing. There are restraints on the natural conclusion of Western war because of a, a idea that war is in our past. It's a Neanderthal idea that no longer belongs in the 21st century. Unfortunately, human nature doesn't change. So that's one thing to remember. The second is, I kind of disagree with your exegesis that Israel says it won and Hamas says it won, so nobody won or who knows what. Everybody knows if you take this 11 or 12 day war, who won? You can adjudicate that question any way you want. How many casualties on one side? How much damage on the other side? Victor, and, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt. I don't want to interrupt by people in the world, people in Ashkelon. My, uh, my parents-in-law said, we feel bad that the war was ended this way. We wanted to keep you, to keep going until Hamas is done. Yes, so I agree with you. Israel, okay, so many people in uh, Israel- No, I, I know that. The same thing is true in Afghanistan. The same thing was true in Iraq. The same thing is true anytime a Western power that has military dominance goes in and fights a less uh, comparable non-Western country, then that country is very adept at appealing to Western public opinion and saying, you're too powerful, you're too disproportionate, you shouldn't do this. And this is, just watch the news in this country. They have, we have people in the West who say, Israel should have had the Iron Dome for Hamas, or <laughs> why it's crazy. You know, you can knock down 3,000 missiles and their people will say, well, why don't they just knock down 2,000 to make it even? That's moral equivalency. That's, that's a Western pathology. But what I'm getting at is you guys determined this phrase or you used it, mow the lawn. And what you mean by that is that you're aware of this Western pathology. And then what you have done in the past is an American president under public pressure from Europe or the UN or your enemies, Russia or China, says, tell them to stop. It's humiliating for us that our client is being humiliated. And we say, hey, you guys, at least until this administration and maybe not the Biden, but other, other than Obama and Biden, we said, hey, I can give you another 48 hours. And then you guys called back and said, hey, I need 24 more. And you said, no, 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 no. And you said, okay, and that, that little game went on while you ended that threat for a while, but you were not allowed under the rules of uh, combat as we're not allowed. You complain that you're not allowed to get rid of Hamas. We complain we weren't able to, to go in there and just bomb the crap out of uh, Al Qaeda and the Baathists in Iraq because of Abu Ghraib. So that's, that's, we both share the same phenomenon. We're aware of it, but that being said, even though this is an asymmetrical war, and even though they put their rockets in the middle of nurseries, and even though the media hates Israel and idolizes people who are not democratic and fascistic, you have discovered, because of your Western traditions, you've discovered how to beat them at their game, not defeat them. But in this 11-day pe period, I will make a prediction to you. 30 days from now, when all the media is gone, people are gonna be walking around Israel. They're gonna be angry that Jews were attacked in the streets. They're gonna be angry that Jews were killed and rockets came, but then suddenly people are gonna say, 
my God, how in the hell did we knock down 95% of these rockets? And how did the, we, we do this? And then people in Gaza are going to be looking at this and they're going to say, Mr. Hamas one, he's dead. Where's Mr. Hamas four? He disappeared. What happened to him? Oh, I had a cousin. What happened to him? He's buried in that tunnel. Well, how many rockets do we have? And they're going to start to tabulating the damage and people are going to say, they're going to do it again if we do this. And we can't continue this. This is not sustainable. So we're going to do all this rhetoric, how we beat them, but we want them to stop. And that's going to last for two to four years. And then they're going to have amnesia and they're going to say, let's try it again. And then you're going to do it again. And that's going to go on and on and on until finally someone is going to decide on their side, we're going to go all out and they're going to be destroyed. Or somebody on your side says, I don't want to mow the lawn. I want to just get rid of it. And so, but for now, and this can go on a long time. There was the first to third Punic war went on for over a century. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years. So this is very common in history. And the Middle East has been at war since 1947. But I would argue that if you look at 1947 and what you were up against then and what it, you are now, you won. In other words, the reason that the world is angry at Israel, there's a variety of reasons, anti-Semitism, of course. But one of the reasons is you're not a, we don't condescend in the West and say, poor little Israel, it's weak, it's got the kibbutz, they've got all these people. So we kind of sympathize with the children of the Holocaust, they're being attacked. No, no, now it is, oh my God, they've got a brilliant economy. Man, they're, they're exporting natural gas. They got the most sophisticated, these guys are really good. They're the overdog. My gosh, I can't sympathize with them anymore. They're too powerful, so I'm going to sympathize with the weak people and forget morality, and that's where we are. But these are Western pathologies that your leaders and your intellectuals and your people in the Israeli street, they know about it. They know all this. And you have a lot of supporters in the United States. And I'll just finish with this strange thing that's happened in the United States, that the left that used to support Israel has now been taken over by the woke movement. And... In their way, you guys are the Minneapolis Police Department and Hamas <laughs> is George Floyd and everything else doesn't matter. You can see Geraldo Rivera the other night on Fox News just screaming and yelling about that. But for most Americans, and especially the Republican Party, and I grew up when anti-Semitism was a weird right-wing phenomenon, people in Idaho or something, that doesn't exist anymore. The, the majority of Americans and the totality of the conservative Republican movement is pro-Israeli. And all of us know that. And we defend Israel all the time that we can, intellectually, morally, ethically, politically, culturally, socially. And I, I can tell you that when I write something, I wrote two articles on Israel this week, I would say 10 to one, the mail I got was favorable, but with one distinction, the mail that was favorable was reasoned. You should have mentioned this. I like this, but, and the mail that was not reasonable was capital letters, F U. <laughs> that, and that, that, that's all I needed to know. Emotion versus reason. Professor Victor Davis Hanson, thank you so much for yeah. your taking the time and be with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. אוקיי, אז אנחנו היינו רק פרופ' ויקטור דוויד הנסון, או פרופ' הנסון, שזה היה מאוד מאוד מגניב להביא אותו. אם אתם רוצים שנביא עוד אנשים בקליבר הזה, אז תגידו, וננסה להביא אותם. חברים, שתהיה לנו, שיהיה לנו שבוע שקט, שתהיה לנו הפסקת שקטה. כמובן, מי שרוצה להצטרף לערוץ מוזמן גם להצטרף לערוץ, גם ללחוץ על הפעמון, וגם יש שם עוד איזה כפתור שכל פעם שאני מעלה סרט אתם תדעו. מה עוד? יש לנו את הספרים. לא, זה הספרים של אנסון, אז זה לא עוזר לנו, אבל יש לנו את הספרים שלנו, יש לנו ממש ממש ספרים מגניבים. אז מי שרוצה... את הספרים האלה מוזמן. יש לי ערוץ טלגרם שאני מעלה בו דברים וניתן גם לשאול אותי שאלות ואני לפעמים עונה. אז מי שרוצה, כנסו לערוץ הטלגרם, לכו לספרים, הצלחה בלימודים. הסמסטר מסתיים, אתם צריכים לעשות את זה כמה שיותר מהר. חברים, תודה רבה, היה תענוג ונשתמע בסרטון הבא.